Welcome to Mindspace Minimal. We're your hosts, Daniel Ryan and Jessica Yatrofsky. You can find us on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We hope you enjoy this episode. And today, we're doing a hypnosis and film. What are we doing? Very special film to both of us, The Master by Paul Thomas Anderson, director, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Jesse Plemons, and an awesome supporting cast. Just a film, a film we both love, yes? Oh my God, I love it. I loved it even more when I just rewatched it, but I it was one of those films that I used to watch a lot, and then I would just put it on mute and have it on in the background because it's also such a beautiful film. I remember when you brought this film up, like, let's do The Master, and I was like, yeah, I mean, it's one of my favorite films, but why? Because I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> remember, and then having watched it again, I was like, oh, that's right. I was shocked to see how much, well, well, we're going to get into it, but hypnosis and regression therapy and all of that kind of comes out in this film or is explored in this film. So thank you for making us watch it for this and doing an episode because I think it's going to be really oh, rad. Please. Thank you, sister, yeah. for being, you know. I love this film. Here, here for this conversation and the brilliant filmmaker you are to oh, inform you. me on that part of the process. Never going to make that film though. Like I was, I was literally reading my notes this morning and I was crying again. yeah it's a very emotional film but um so dan yes you seem so familiar to me (laughs) someday i'll remember jessica where we met before and i feel like this is the through line through this film so please give the synopsis so here's the synopsis on imdb there's two of them actually this is the shorter of them the other one is a little bit long After returning from the Second World War, having witnessed many horrors, a charismatic intellectual creates a faith-based organization in an attempt to provide the meaning to his life. This is Philip Seymour Hoffman's Lancaster Dodd. He becomes known as the Master. His right-hand man, a former drifter, begins to question both the belief system and the Master as the organization grows and gains a fervent following. This is Joaquin Phoenix's character, Freddie Quell. And then Lancaster Dodd, a lot of people do think that he's based on L. Ron Hubbard. And I got to say, appreciating Paul Thomas Anderson's what feels to me like respectful and, and smart PR in that he creates a boundary between this film and the characters and the actual people they might represent in Scientology. It also feels like a a overt reference, you know, a, a direct and overt reference to L. Ron Hubbard and the birth of Scientology and and that period of time and mental health and yeah. the new age exploration that was just getting started in the 1940s and 50s in the United States. Yeah. And Anderson still maintains that he rejects the idea that this is a movie about Scientology. But again, you know, it's what audiences latched onto. And Anderson actually screened this movie for Cruz, and mm-hmm. Cruz, quote, erupted with anger, specifically objecting to scenes where Dodd's son Val admits that Dodd made up the tenets of 
quote, the cause, which we're going to get into that in a second. He's saying it's not like this exploration of L. Ron Hubbard exactly, but it's an amalgamation of a bunch of different people that I I won't go into because I started reading it and it was quite boring because I think um, even if it's like a fictionalized story that has a lot of flavor from L. Ron Hubbard and from Scientology, I love it. But yeah, so this film was chosen as the best film of the half decade by the AV Club. I I don't know what that means, half decade, but I mean, I know what it means, but you know, that's a a weird award. And then did you know that this is Paul Thomas Anderson's favorite film of all the films he's ever made? I didn't know that. I I love hearing that. You know, of all of his films, this is the one that I would certainly want to ask him the most about. You yeah. know, I have so many questions about his process, his interest, his curiosity, the development mm-hmm. of the script. I would just love to talk to him about it. So Rotten Tomatoes critics gave it an 85. Audience gave it a 61. They said... Uh, Smart and solidly engrossing, the master extends Paul Thomas Anderson's winning streak of challenging films for serious audiences. So although this was a box office bomb, it was it was just a critically acclaimed film regardless. I mean, I remember seeing this in the theater and just Me being too. like, whoa. So let's get into it. May I share a story with you before we start talking plot points? Yeah. So this movie as it's important to both of us, for me, it's really, it tells this story, a fictional version, albeit, but simultaneously, and this is where I just have to give respect to Paul Thomas Anderson. Fictional though it may be, I feel it's the most accurate telling I've ever seen of the origins of regression therapy, the evolution of spiritual therapies and hypnosis in the 1940s, 50s, and you know into the 60s in the United States, in the mid-20th century, that directly influenced my father's work, that directly influences my work today. And there was a, a, a particular story that's from 2011, uh, about a year before this movie comes out. I'm in Turkey at an event, the World Congress for Regression Therapy, held in Istanbul, if I remember correctly. And I have uh, I have this recording, actually. Uh, I'm interviewing Hans Tendam, who is at that time the president of the Earth Association for Regression Therapy, and a, a lovely man, an old friend of my dad's. So we have a kind of familial and friendly connection already. So in this hour-long interview that he agreed to, the first thing I wanted to ask him about was the origins of regression therapy, which itself today is still only 40 to 50 years old. It's really very young. And he told me something that I'll never forget. It it very much surprised me. He said in his very dry Dutch way, well, if we're going to talk about the origins of regression therapy, we must first talk about Scientology. Hmm. Makes sense. Well, yeah. Did it make sense to you when he said that? I was very, very surprised, but, you know, yes, at the same time, it needed some explaining and it's not what I was anticipating. But, you know, Dianetics was an extraordinarily popular book and it was really very, uh, 
very important as mm -hmm. far as self-help books go in the late 20th century, predating any, you know, Tom Cruise jumping up and down on Oprah's couch mm -hmm. and the documentaries we see today about Scientology and any bad PR that might be out there. Uh, Dianetics was just this extraordinarily popular self-help book written by an extremely eccentric author. Have you with read a, it? I've read pieces of it, mm -hmm. but I've not done it cover to cover. It's a huge book. Not that that's a problem. Yeah, but, I you know, started it's reading a, it. It's like not because of this. Right. I've just been reading it on and off because I'm a glutton yeah. for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> well, just before we get into the plot, again, mm -hmm. this this movie, I felt and feel so elegantly, just so beautifully dramatizes the origins of regression therapy that Hans told me about that day and that I would go on to study. And, you know, when this movie came out and to this day, I'm still moved by it. I feel like it has mm -hmm. so much empathy for all the characters, including Lancaster Dodd, who, yeah. you know, isn't supposed to be L. Ron Hubbard. So when this movie came out, your father had already passed like a year yes. prior. So he just yes. missed this film. Yes. Like, fuck. You think he would have liked it? <laughs> Actually, no, Jess. <laughs> I think he, by the end of his life, he had no patience for this kind of shit. He was like, he it, he was so funny. Actually, I think you and my dad would have totally loved each other. I think you guys would have gotten along so famously because he was, I don't know, he was such a personality. Uh, obviously, I'd love him very, very much still. But uh, the end of his life, very sincerely, this is something I notice in my work, too. But he was working with people's trauma and mm -hmm. working with people's stories so directly. The entertainment he sought out was mm -hmm. like popcorn movies. He didn't he didn't want your indie film. He didn't want <laughs> your, you know, challenging like, take on relationship. He didn't want reality. <laughs> you know, it's what he was helping people deal with every day, actually. And in his entertainment, he wanted the furthest thing from it. And I kind of understand that. At the time when he was around, I was like, you know, I would make fun of him for it. But now mm -hmm. I get it. I think so. Another thing I was going to say is that so Paul Thomas Anderson had this idea for the film 12 years before he made it, 12 years before he made the film. He was making Magnolia with Tom Cruise. Believe what you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then something else super cool about this, which just like uh, makes me feel like that about it is that Paul Thomas Anderson, he edited all the trailers to this film himself and he purposely mm. included clips that were not appearing in the actual film to kind of throw the audience off a bit so that when they did enter the film or you know go to the theater to see the movie they could easily you know kind of escape through the film and not see all the scenes so there's some really beautiful shots that don't appear in the film that are actually in the trailer so the trailers mm. are kind of like art themselves in a way as well and you know just i i vibe with that i don't know that seems like some don't, virgo shit right <laughs> well don't you love it when filmmakers just approach their trailers as an art yeah. in themselves like one of my biggest pet peeves and it's so common is when too much of the film is given away in a trailer yeah I mean, it's like, annoying it's like okay saw the film that's it i mean i just you know what's gonna happen it's it's so common too. So I always appreciate yeah. that when there's some creativity in the trailer. I just love watching the film. Like, uh, I mean, that's why I watch a lot of bad movies because I don't watch the trailer. I'm like, oh, oh uh, love a good bad movie. 
I was like, John Travolta, I don't care what it is. Let's just start watching it. I watched you know? Con Air the other night. <laughs> oh, lovely. How was that? Bad. But Not good. the first time, right? Actually, it was. I had never seen it before. <gasps> so I was like, you know, I mean, oh, it's like 90s Nick blessed. Cage, John Malkovich on full-blown Malkovich. I was like, let's go. You know, just turn it on. It was fine. God. It was a good way That's to spend That's a great film. That's minutes. a great film. Yeah. No, and it, it, yeah, it's it's not too long. Okay. Yeah, so. so let's get into this. Let's set the scene in history. What year is it? It was right after the war. Yeah. It starts after mm-hmm. the war. So incredible fashion. People are looking fabulous. Suits. Women are looking great. But that's not actually what we're seeing. The opening scene Joaquin is coming back from the war, but the actual opening picture that you see when the movie starts is the ocean. You see this shot of looking down into the water, like treading. You said it was was at the front of the boat, back of the boat? It's the water churning out of the back of the boat, or at least that's exactly what it looks like to me. And I think it's this movie's version of the hypnotic spiral. So yeah, immediately I get chills when you say that because it's just like the perfect foreshadowing. I'm thinking conscious. I'm thinking pre-conscious. I think, uh, you know, subconscious. I'm thinking id, ego, super, like I'm going there already. It's also- They're laying that down. Yes. And it's somehow some of the most beautiful cinematography of water ever either. It's just so transfixing. Yeah. Who was the cinematographer, Bobby? Because he worked with someone else. This was one of the films he worked with someone else because they weren't available. Hmm. I don't know if his answer is going to pop up here. Okay, we'll see. He's listening. Um, Yeah, he worked with someone different than he typically uh, usually works with. So Joaquin Phoenix, we meet his character first. He's on a beach. He's wandering around. He's with some natives um, and some other sailors. And the first lines in the film where Joaquin's character is talking Freddy. So... I don't know if we're going to do Joaquin, if we're going to do Freddie, but whatever. Just so I'm putting it out there. Um, do so you have Freddy's a preference? Talking, um, I was starting to get used to calling him Freddie. Let's go with Freddie. Let's lock okay, it in. So, yeah. So, so Freddie is improvising. Actually, those first lines were all improvised where he's talking on the beach and he's mm. walking around and he's a bit of a pervert. <laughs> yes. I guess like in these first like sequences, you see that he's, I don't know. There's something perverted going on with him. It makes it clear he's mentally ill and has some kind of, you know... Perversion. Yeah. I mean, sexual deviancy of some sort. Yeah. It's it's uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And they put that right in the front of the movie. I can imagine people walking out when they see a few of those scenes. Sure. And it's not even... They're not even... um, They're not graphic scenes. It's just like the psychological setup of you know, watching Freddie walk around this beach and do weird things. Yeah. Um, so they all get back on a boat. They go home. They go back to get evaluated, I guess, after the war. That's what you do. I don't uh, I don't know because well, I've never been at I th- war. I think at one point they're talking to a group about a nervous disorder, which I, which yeah. I read as, because this is around the time, the first time when post-traumatic stress with was that a thing. Was, yeah. a, uh, was a thing. So Acknowledged. I, so I think what PTA is showing us here, actually, without overtly doing it, is the first group of soldiers that came back from the war that were diagnosed with PTSD and that were being treated for this nervous disorder 
with, you know, relatively archaic psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. And then I have a beef in this next scene where they're showing Freddy, he, they're giving him a rookshaw test and they're showing him the cards and they show him card one and then they show him card six. <laughs> and I picked up on that and it violates Rorschach's uh, strict rules of administration. That's such a good so, catch. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I didn't know if that was done purposely or by mistake, but um, poor Freddy, right? He doesn't even get the Rorschach test in order. (laughs) Anyways, that's evil. I should be laughing at that. But um, yeah, so jumping ahead now, Freddy's, he's back in the world. He's like a photographer at like a Sears Roebuck, right? Yeah. Was that that they used to be called? Because it was yeah. Sears. Old, but back old in the day, it was like Sears Roebuck. Depart- yeah, department Robux. stores. Yeah. And he's a photographer. He's making a lot of alcohol, Dan, <laughs> throughout this whole movie. Yeah, he makes... Which comes back around. Makes his own homemade hooch. Mm-hmm. I actually... I, I double-checked this because my first inclination was like, oh, it... He's using ethanol because they show him in the dark room making alcohol. He's and I was like, okay, ethanol, and then uh, developer. Right. Okay. Oh, my God. Yikes! <laughs> right. So he's drinking these majorly. Um, he's making poison. Poisonous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's making poison. So before we end this little s- section, um, fun fact. Paul Thomas Anderson initially wanted to cast his own two children, the two kids or the, the family that gets photographed because mm. um, he's taking pictures of people huh. in, in the photos, yeah. photo space. In the, the portrait studio at the in, department store. Yeah, in the port- yeah. <laughs> and um, he decided not to because his children wouldn't fit the time period because they're mixed race. Well, there you go. Yeah. So I was like, oh, that's, oh, interesting. Yeah, because, yeah. yeah, cast your kids, you know. But it wouldn't have made any sense and <laughs> at all. And then Freddie gets fired um, in a very intense scene, which you're kind of laughing, and then you're kind of seeing this mental illness kind of rearing its ugly head. Um, he basically so attacks it's not nice to somebody in the store, right? I mean, it's... yeah. The guy attacks him more, though. I don't think Eddie, so. Really? You don't think no, so? No, there's that part where, I mean, he's putting the light. With the tie? Yeah, he's putting the light right up against him, and then he tries to choke him with his tie. I mean, yeah, like, Freddie me Freddy assaults him, for sure. But, it's, but then he, like, gets punched by the guy and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but it's, um, to your point, I mean, it's just, it's so weird. And to the, to, yeah, so to the credit of Joaquin Phoenix's performance, which, you know, we cannot yeah. say enough about. I mean, he, we there there's enough out there about what an incredible actor he is. But holy shit, this performance is in the top three for him, for me. Uh, yeah. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman, too, of course. Yeah. And, you know, in that scene, too, I think we are introduced to that. It's not that Freddie's like mentally ill. Like, we, I don't want to paint him like that, but it's that. The unpredictability of his character is something that really keeps you on the edge of your seat. And, and in the scene, like after they're fighting and he's basically running out of the department store, he's picking up Crystal, which I was like, oh, you know, and he's just fucking throwing Crystal, like not at the guy, but towards <laughs> it. And it's just like breaking all over the Sears store. And I was like, oh, my effing G. 
because crystal's so expensive and it just seems so like no no respect for anything like i was him i was i was more okay with him choking the guy with a tie than him throwing crystal <laughs> the, uh, anyways i i, I um, would that's... characterize him as mentally ill for for the record i mean okay yeah and, okay. I mean, and not yeah not traumatized very much so yes it's not yeah. it's not a judgment. I'm not trying to vilify him or yeah, anything yeah, yeah. that, of course. But yeah. I mean, the the movie I think goes to lengths in the first 20 minutes to show us that you know he's he's a loose cannon. He's on an edge, right. and he can become Perfectly an, an animal in any moment. Yeah, but he's also really fun. He yeah he makes his own poisoned hooch and he can fucking party. Yeah. Yes, that's that's also yeah. clear too. Yeah. Um. So next he goes from Sears to working on a cabbage farm, which he pretty quickly gets fired because he gives some of this, as you say, hooch, this poison hooch to this um, old man and the old man. It's like he's, he, I don't know if he dies or not, but we don't they're see. nursing yeah, him. We don't see. Yeah. He, he's sick. So it's kind of unclear whether he dies. So they, they run him off the farm essentially, which is a fucking beautiful shot. Yeah. I mean, they go from dark to light. It's like dusk and they're running out into this cabbage uh, field yeah. Oh, it's fucking beautiful. But anyway, so moving ahead. I do have the name of the cinematographer here just to speak to that beautiful shot. And it's a a difficult name. I hope I don't butcher it. Sure. Mihai Malamere. Who's the guy, Bobby, that is usually his cinematographer? Okay, yeah. So Robert, yeah, he was actually shooting, um, God, a, a really big film. So he wasn't available, but this other guy. Yeah, The Born Legacy. There you go. Which was a good film. I shouldn't say that. I'm going to hate Mel. I love all films, people. Yeah, so next he's so he's wandering the streets, right? And he trespasses onto a boat right as it's leaving the dock, right? Now the story begins. So we see nothing that transpires, only that he's waking up in a bunk in the ship and this woman is sort of ushering him somewhere. Insert Philip Seymour Hoffman's quarters we're here man we've met the master right which we don't know is the master yet we're in his presence we are in his presence they're talking for a little bit what did you say he asked him he was like who who are you and he's like i'm the i'm i'm something about i I, i'm the something of the ship what did he say i'm a writer a doctor a physicist philosopher a hopelessly inquisitive man just like you and then he says, no, I, I am the it, commander of this ship. Yes, yeah. so I'm the commander of this, yeah. of this ship. So the other night I actually, I screen grabbed that clip because it just felt so 2020 mm. when, because I keep saying that I'm going through a jessessance. And when someone asks me what I do, I'm like, I'm a philosopher. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a engineer and I'm a philosopher and I'm a wandering man just like yeah, you yeah. you know like that's how I feel like answering people now so you'll be seeing that coming up on my Instagram pretty soon Lancaster Dodd is a mood yeah he is a total <laughs> mood and oh god but um yeah so he's just like you know they start talking and Philip Seymour Hoffman's just like or Dodd is like you were acting aggressive because you drank too much alcohol and walking like with his hands on his hips, he goes, "Yeah, I don't think so." <laughs> like, Hilarious! Just oh awesome. my god! And he's a mood, right? Oh my god! Freddie Quell is a mood, <laughs> totally. And he has 
the hunt he does this hunch oh, thing yes his and body language, um his he's posture. yeah he spent three months in character method um he even had a dentist put a plate bond a plate to his teeth so it scratched the inside of his mouth and originally they had like rubber bands and stuff so he would he had that thing where he kind of talked out of the side of his mouth. Or, mm-hmm. or, I don't know. Right. And um, he ended up taking out the rubber bands because the the metal plate was scratching him so much or the appliance that they put in there that it just reminded him to stay in the character of Freddy. You also got to imagine he's actually feeling pain during the filming of this as well. You know, so that's that's something pretty interesting. I mean, him help, like clenching his teeth and being that way you know it's commitment but it, it's commitment and it it's it's something interesting too that um we'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about um one scene in particular that's one of my favorite scenes but and hoffman says during this little greeting in his quarters he says you seem so familiar to me which is what i said to you at the top of this episode yes reincarnation being a theme of the film right yeah. and i was like Oh, here we go. Buckle up. We need like the roller coaster harness. Buckle up for this because you know that this is just going to get fantastic. And so he says, my daughter's having a wedding tomorrow. Like you to join us. But your memories are uninvited. I, yeah, I, as a hypnotist, as a regression therapist, as a film lover, I see this and I am I'm speechless. And uh, this is a dramatization of something again that is a moment that the the work I do today, the work we've done together, Jessica, has descended from. You know, it's, and it's mm-hmm. just wild for me to see it so beautifully performed by these these actors and this filmmaking team. So I'm gonna start crying. I know. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, it's a. That's how this is emotional for me. This movie. It's, yeah. it's like it's like this weird family film I found or something yes. that Paul Thomas Anderson made for me, which of course it's not. Just for you. Just for me. But uh, yeah, the whole uninviting of his memories that you seem familiar to me. That on two levels, the the you seem familiar to me. A, it's a hypnotic suggestion that suggests Mm -hmm. a closeness that may or may not be there already. And then B, as a regression therapist or anybody who's interested in or believes in reincarnation, that's just a kind of thing of, oh, well, you know, you seem familiar to me. We've probably been here before. It's something you'll hear these people say, (laughs) you know? So yeah, yeah, just brilliant. So, do you know what the name of the ship was that they were on? What was it? The Aletheia. Ah. So, the Aletheia is Greek for the word truth. Beautiful. So, I'm just like, ugh. Right, right. <laughs> Stop. Yeah. And um, it comes from the prefix A um, and the word leith, which means oblivion. So, again, you think, if you know anything about Scientology, you know a billion like that whole thing. Let's not go off on that. Um, so this literally translates to unforgetfulness, which fits the intentions of the cause, which is the name of this group, which I don't know if we already um, discussed yet, but no, he's basically, he's, he's arrived. He, he trespasses onto this boat of a group of people 
under the name called The Cause. Yeah. So it translates into unforgetfulness, which fits the intentions of, quote, the cause of remembering past lives and forgotten memories. So he does. He senses that Freddie is in conflict, right? Yes. <laughs> Some way or another. That's a nice way to put it. And that's why he says your memories are uninvited. And Johnny Greenwood... um, you know, he even names that main track that we hear throughout the film kind of being repeated, Aletheia. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, because when I was Googling Aletheia, um, Johnny Greenwood's track kept coming up. I'm like, no, fuck. Can I get some Greek mythology here? It's like it immediately goes to contemporary whatever, which I'm just like, please, let's not lose <laughs> our education. Worth, worth but, yeah. complimenting the score, though, right there, too. I mean, Johnny Greenwood in the music for the film Oh, just yeah. Just fucking brilliant. Just all of it great. Oh, yeah. It ties it up in a beautiful little bow that just, you know, continues the tear flowage. Yeah, so now, Dan, yeah. we're 31 minutes and 50 seconds mm. in. Insert hypnosis. Mm -hmm. So we're on the boat. It's before the wedding starts, right? And they're just wandering around. Amy Adams, um, we're introduced to, is Dodd's wife. And she's kind of like showing Freddie the ropes and they sit down and there's an audience, obviously all of the, the guests that came for the wedding, they're watching Dodd perform regression, I guess, hypnosis. What? Tell me. Well, you know, the cause, if we can agree the cause is a kind of surrogate for Scientology or things like that, then what's taking place, I think, is a... Uh, a revision or a rewriting of the auditing process within Scientology, which has in it pieces of hypnosis, regression therapy, NLP, and all of these, not all, but a lot of the modalities and acronyms associated with the practice of clinical hypnosis. So we, what we have is a beautifully, I will say, you know, a very beautifully constructed representation of all of these little things in the film's own version. But so what I think mm -hmm. is what we're seeing to put it uh, simply is a 1950s version of Scientology's auditing process, which was a foundation for all of these other things. Processing. Processing, right? as they call it in the film. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I get a little confused because I watched a lot of Scientology documentaries. And yeah, I wonder what L. Ron Hubbard would refer to a session like that as because then there's a scene that comes later that we're going to delve into where it's just a one-on-one. -on -one. There's yeah. no audience. Like, yeah. is that auditing? Is that processing? I mean, I guess we would have to talk to, to a Scientologist to kind of get clarification on that. But, um, so yeah, I just ahead. want to mention too, Jessica, and we both know this and can speak to this because all of these things have good and bad PR and, yeah. you know, evil applications and then divine applications, you know, so just to make it clear, the film is a brilliant representation. It's its own story. Yeah. There are ways of using all of these things, which Jessica and I have both experienced, pardon my speaking for you, but I, I know we have, you know, so th there are ways to use these things in positive healthy healing ways that don't have all the bad PR and the negative shit attached to them. And then there are other ways of doing it where you can collect collateral on people. And, you know, it is, it's more of a, a very negative and kind of pernicious yeah. cult mentality. So, you know, it, it's the tool mm -hmm. 
think of think of these tools, dear listener, as a hammer. You know, a hammer can build you a house or it can be used as a weapon. It really depends whose hand it's in. Okay, Dan. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's listen. But that's 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 no, it cuz you're right. And I also think um well, this is a little controversial, but you know, cult the word cult, when yeah. people just label things as cult, it's like we're all in a fucking cult. Like I'm, I'm in a cult of, you know, working out to to doing this kind of workout. I'm in a cult of this or that. So not to be insensitive to people that were actually in organizations that were very harmful, but we actually have an episode on cults. So go check that out mm-hmm. um, where we delve more into that. But um, so Getting back to what's going on in this scene is there's an audience. They're all watching um, this person be, um, you know, guided by Dodd and they're um, observing. And Amy Adams' character, which what is her name in the film? Peg, I believe. Peggy. Peggy. Yes, Peggy. Yeah. Sometimes called mother. God. Um, Yeah. So uh, she even makes a crack at some point about his other wives, too, which is funny. If you know um, the history of L. Ron Hubbard, he had a few wives, <laughs> so, which is like, OK, so this is this isn't paced on him. OK, don't get me started. So Peggy leans over to Freddie and goes, do you know what's happening? And of course, he's like, no. <laughs> and she goes, we record everything through all lifetimes. So there you go, right? We're talking about regression, right? Therapy, yes. and we're talking about all of these things that you and I love. It's also worth noting, too, I think that I, I could be wrong about this, but I do believe that the never, recording, never. <laughs> I think the recording metaphor in the idea of memory being a neutral tape recorder starts with Hubbard or Dianetics in some way when this is... A, a, you know, first of all, it's just a metaphor to begin with, but it's a thoroughly debunked metaphor now. We know that memory is a highly fallible, emotionally curated, not the least bit neutral process. You know, the, the science and understanding of memory as it exists currently. Uh, so I just want to point that out, too, because that recording metaphor is one I heard a fucking ton of in mm-hmm. the 90s and early 2000s and uh, 80s too. And it's it is it's a crude metaphor. But again, I got to give this film props, man, because it's accurate to the time. So just yeah. that footnote. So now we see um, Freddie's wandering around the ship. He sees a lot of young. There's a lot of women, um, a lot of young ladies um, and men too but they're younger um there are some older people on on the ship as well but they're all listening to tapes and so freddie picks up some headphones and he's he starts listening to the tapes and um he picks it up at this point where i think it's dodd's voice right Mm -hmm. it's got to be and and it just repeats it goes you are not ruled by your emotions. You are not ruled by your emotions. And it's saying some other things. And then it comes back again with, you are not ruled by your emotions. And I was just like, oh, well, this is totally like NLP, right? Yeah. Isn't there some other, man is not an animal. Yes. You know, the stuff about man yeah. not being an animal. I I, mm-hmm. and I, I feel like all of that is thematically about Freddie too, you know, Freddie's yeah. animal nature that keeps coming to the surface in a way that can't be controlled. And Dodd keeps pointing that out to him, that you're not an animal. 
Um, he says that uh, in a few scenes that we'll get to those too. He just keeps reminding him that he's not an animal. But, you know, I mean, animal instinct comes out in us or, or this animalistic instinct can come out in us. And it certainly causes a lot of um, – it happens a lot with Freddie. But we kind of know why. And we learn more about why, too, later on in the film, which is kind of interesting. Um, And I had this moment, though, when I see him put the headphones on and he's he's also checking out all of the girls. (laughs) And he's writing them obscene notes like, hey, want to fuck? And stuff like this while they're listening. He's like passing notes around. I'm like, of course. Because he's still, he he can never behave for too long, right? Like he's always got to do something. He's an but, animal. <laughs> yeah. So in this scene though, when he has the headphones on, I think to myself at this moment, I'm like, God. I shouldn't say God. At this moment, I think this cult could save him. Maybe this cult could save him. And that was such an odd thought, but it felt so real to me that maybe Dodd and his mission could be the savior of this young man who's otherwise a wanderer and um, just gets into a lot of trouble and doesn't have a, quote, master, right? Like anybody that he respects and nobody in his life. Um, I think you're articulating like one of the major themes of the movie. You know, just this. Thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I really am. There's a line we're we're ahead of ourselves here, but Amy yeah, Adams yeah. has a line later that's about you know people having something that's larger than themselves or serving yeah. something larger than themselves. And I think yeah, you're articulating it beautifully. And this is Freddie is the the kind of cipher that we yeah. look at that through. Yeah. Did you know that uh, Joaquin Phoenix's parents escaped a cult in the 1970s? Oh. I think I remember hearing that, but I, I had forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this, they say, can you see me rolling my eyes? The Master is a movie about the dangers of getting seduced by a cult. And because Walking Phoenix was partially raised in a cult that his parents joined, it was the Children of God cult in the 1970s. And I'm sure people probably our age and older remember what um, Children of God cult was. For you younger lads and lad laddesses, <laughs> what's the what's the female for lad for lads lad? and lasses? Lasses, I'm like lattices. Isn't <laughs> lattice like a like a fucking lattice work ladder? Yeah. <laughs> for you persons out there that were born probably or after the 1980s, you probably don't maybe know what Children of God cult was, but check it out because it's there's there's a there was a lot of celebrities that were in that cult. Yeah, go ahead and Google yeah. it. There's plenty of stuff out there. So I want to put a pin in this mentally for us and for the audience because I'm going to come back to this later about this the city of God thing and that his parents left this cult because um, sure. he was one of five children and it was very interesting. So putting yeah. a pin in this, I'm going to come back to it later. So there's so many things that I want to like ping on this too. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to shut up for a while and I'm just going to okay. go ahead and flow through the plot and let's, let's, okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's I don't want to, I don't want to slow things down too much. So after the wedding back in Hoffman's chambers or Dodd's chambers, he wants some of that hooch. He's like, what did you make me make me more? So he makes some more and they, start drinking together 
And then Dodd asks him if he'd like to do some informal processing. And it's like, well, fuck yeah, you know. But I think Freddie doesn't really... Freddie's just along for the ride. I think that's why we also like this character, right? Is that he kind of fears nothing. But you know, probably what's feeding his mental illness, if I may be, what do they say? Chair chair psychologist? Armchair psychologist? Armchair psychologist. Armchair psychologist. And I have have arms on this chair. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that... um, He's fearless, but really at the core of what's going on for him is something that's fear, right? At the very, very core, if you really think about it, because it's kind of revealed, right, in this first processing session. And so Dodd goes, you're going to be my guinea pig and my protege. And then I was like, oh, shit. Okay, so he's really lasering in on Freddie. And that, again, makes me just think that They had a past life together. This is me reading into it, by the way, guys. So that they probably had a past life together and he wants to like get close to Freddie again or help him in some kind of way. And so what do you think about the processing? I mean, this is a pretty stellar scene. I think this is the Academy Award nominating scene for the two of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first off, yes. Holy cow. Just to incredible actors in a dimly lit room together Mm -hmm. sitting across from each other yes going toe to toe so that first and then yeah this informal auditing it's just gorgeous you know philip seymour hoffman plays the ego of a person who thinks of himself as a master philosopher and a kind of master therapist and a kind Mm -hmm. of you know creator of his own everything Uh, he plays that with such accuracy to the the egotism and cult of personality I've seen in not I, I haven't been around many cult leaders but I sure have been around a lot of egotistical hypnotists and therapists and they're That's usually difference they're well they're usually goofier Jessica is the difference actually mm. like the cult leaders are usually better at the drama yeah. that that goes along with convincing people they have actual power therapists yeah. are usually just fucking people that have too much sense of, I don't know, their own self-importance or whatever. And I'm painting with a very, very broad brush here. I don't mean to, you know, I'm not trashing anybody. So are you saying like, because Dodd is kind of, he's very serious and there, you know, he speaks with conviction, but then he connects with people when he has these little silly one-offs, you know, to show that he is like human and he's warm and he has a sense of humor yeah. And you we know. see we see his fraudulence later in the film too. You know, right. we see that in various ways. Yeah, and he handles that pretty well too, you know, with conviction, I think. I mean, yeah, he he handles it as if he's not guilty. I don't know right. if you Denial. call that Yeah, I mean, if we want to call that handling it well, sure. <laughs> uh but uh I mean, you know, his his Deceptions also made clear by the movie, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so again, I just think his playing of Dodd and the writing is brilliant there. And then Freddie, Freddie just seems—I don't want to get ahead of us—but he seems yeah, unchanged, yeah, you know. And the auditing again, it's really just them going back and forth, and you see some very primitive regression therapy here too. Yeah, yeah. I really liked it, but it also scared me. I remember the first time I saw it, it scared me. I thought, oh. God, they're going deep real quick 
But from what I learned of Scientology and an auditing session or processing session, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry for any Scientologists out there that are screaming um, that I'm getting it wrong. But I think that um, these questions go so deep so quick and then they're repeated over and over again he keeps asking him these same questions over and over again and during the session you reveal that like one of freddie's biggest regrets is that he doesn't go back and get this love of his life that he left back home and that's really the only time that he kind of breaks down and kind of cries like that that was a disappointment all these other things that he did were not disappointments like killing people in the war disappointing so-and-so and and none of these things really affected him until he actually talked about love which I thought was something very interesting because you kind of feel like Freddie just he doesn't wear it on the exterior but we all just want to be loved right and Dodd brings him in to his chambers and it's as like an act of love right that's kind of how I start to to feel about this over time, you know, after having watched this film a ton of times and then watching it again recently for this talk, I, I just think about that and that he does start crying when he, when he talks about um, love. You said something really interesting that I think um, people, that people would be interested to hear about, you know, when they start the processing session, he, or, or the session, that he has to keep his eyes open. And if he blinks, they're going to start from the beginning and he's going to ask him all the same questions again. So, yes, the keeping of the eyes open is a way of adding stress to the process. You know, we see mm-hmm. that in a couple different ways over the course of the film. And this is something that is done, you know, this is something that is done depending on the context. And again, there are ways to do this that are compassionate. You know, there are ways to have people kind of use those muscles and build endurance positively. But I think in this case, you know, it's there to add stress to the process and to add an element that will essentially help break down, you know, Freddie's uh, Mm -hmm. mind at that moment and Freddie's thought process. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting element. And again, something that's very accurate to, uh, to the process. Mm Mm-hmm. And he slams the table at some point because he's just like, ah, I close my eyes again. And then, you know, Dodd is asking him these intense questions again. And then some of his answers are changing, right? Because he's becoming more honest in, in the throes of stress, right? And more things are coming out, either what from his subconscious or from the things that are deeply embedded in him are starting to come out. And then they also have this moment where they're like also laughing, you know, and they they feel like comrades. And so it's a very beautiful scene, very well acted, very beautifully executed. So now uh, they are off to. Next is New York. Next is New York at the, the home of the Drummonds. Who's, who owned the boat, apparently, the Aletheia. It was their yeah. boat. So they arrive in New York to a beautiful greeting. And um, immediately we're in another hypnosis session with an audience. So people are watching this older woman be hypnotized by Dodd. They're doing past life regression. She wakes from it. And they all, you know, Dodd basically s- s- describes what this is and what's going on. And, and the woman is asking questions and I want you to 
expand on this. Happy to, happy to. Yeah, this is another one of those scenes where I'm watching this and I'm I I could get fucking emotional. Just like. mm-hmm. So one of the first things about this scene that's important to note, which I, I would love some historical precedent, a little bit more time to research myself on, is you know this is taking place about twenty years, maybe a little bit more, before any books come out about past life regression and regression therapy specifically. So wow. anything that's taking place is firmly, you know, it's either fictionalized or it was taking place in a very early context of Scientological, you know, structures, if we can call them that. But, you know, a very early primitive form of what would later become past life regression you know, past life regression itself and, you know, having a background in meditation and a lot of ancient precedent as well. So then we have this parlor scene in the Drummond's home. And if I may, to just bring us to that one skeptic's comment, we have Mm -hmm. a past life regression happening before an audience in this person's home. So I did want to interject something here. Um, When the woman comes out of the the trance she goes was i a man or what does she say there i can't i've got it written down what i just what i just experienced was that me she says Mm. to dodd and then dodd says yes that was your spirit okay and then a skeptical man fuck face face. (laughs) pig fuck uh (laughs) dodd eventually calls him pig fuck that's where that came from uh but on my notes i have (laughs) then fuck face questions and the movie does do a good job of, you know, the guy is kind of rude yeah. because, you know, just like, uh, you know, my uh, interrupting you, which I apologize for, you know, he Please. keeps, he keeps interrupting Dodd though. And he's like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse mm-hmm. me. While mm-hmm. Dodd is trying to speak to the woman that he's working with. And then the skeptical guy says, I think this is the line. Some of this sounds quite like hypnosis. Is it not? Yeah. And it's also delivered in a shit way. It is. Like I it's like it's not bad acting. It's like you're a dick. Yeah. And you're like sounds a lot like hypnosis. It's like, well, it is dick face. Like and that's how we get to the past life memories is like through hypnosis. I don't know. It that was so annoying to me. I guess like his character in, in general. So I looked up that scene because I um wanted to grab something else that I'll talk to you about later. Um, I looked at that scene and I saw that. I love reading comments on that person. I go, I'm, I'm, I'm going through the comments, right? I'm thumbs up in all the stuff that I like. And the best comment on there was, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> because the guy just says it like 10 times while Dot is trying to fucking talk. So yeah, anyhow. This is... Uh, accurate too, uh, you know. Accurate in that, the kind of skepticism, and uh, you, you know, I, I appreciate that you are even somewhat defensive on behalf of Scientologists and respectful. I have, a, I, I must confess, Jessica, I have a harder time mustering that. It's not that I am disrespectful; oh. I wouldn't, but it, it's, it is. Uh, maybe I'm just too affected by the documentaries I've seen. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, and I, I do respect anybody's faith 
you know, I, I, and I respect all religions, but, uh, you know, based on the very, I don't know, the very young history of this particular religion and what we know about it, it is somewhat difficult to hold an equal weight to others. Yeah, I can do it. Well, bless you. Uh, <laughs> Thank sincerely. you. <laughs> you going to knight me now? <laughs> I mean, yeah, if, if that's what it takes. <laughs> I think it's just because I'm just so fascinated by Scientology. I think it's a really interesting subject, an interesting religion. I know some Scientologists. Sure. I just have, I don't want to go so far as to say I have a reverence for it, but I don't have disrespect for it. See, I see it as weaponizing my line of work. Mm. But there's so much crossover, (laughs) though. I wouldn't call it crossover. What would you call it? I would call it. Um, you know, a, a, a use of, of certain tools, you know, mm-hmm. I would say it's an application of certain tools and a misapplication of others. You mm-hmm. know, I, I wouldn't call it crossover. There's, again, there's similar, uh, yeah, tools, structures, patterns that we use, similar vocabulary, but there's also some extraordinarily crucial differences between an average session of regression therapy and what takes place in a Scientology auditing session. Yeah, and and I and we both don't know that because we've not been present for that. And that's why it's like I can't speak to that. It just sounds like they're doing some really intense work. When so when this guy goes off. Oh, may I may I say one more thing about the skeptic? Yeah, yeah. No, that's what I was going to ask you. What I want you to expand on this guy. Yeah, he's accurate because you know, and ju- just what we're talking about. The kind of dismissal that past life regression receives, Scientology too perhaps, is usually rude, mm-hmm. is usually, you know, absolute and somewhat ignorant, is usually like this guy who shows up yeah. and, you know, is just kind of disrespectful and shitting all over the whole process. Mm-hmm. You know, that unfortunately, I, I love this scene for just that reason. It's yeah. the one note of skepticism, the one note on hypnosis that comes through in the film, but it's so dramatic. It's mm-hmm. so kind of intense. It's so confrontational. And then later, Freddie and Clark go and beat that guy up. Yeah. But just to back up for a second, he calls it like time travel bullshit. He calls him out on misleading people. I mean, he really insults Dodd, but Dodd fucking hands his ass back to him because Dodd goes, he says, (laughs) he stands up, right? Everyone's sitting and Dodd stands up and he's like with his blazer, you know, and he's like with that little piece of hair that's always coming down. And he's like, "Um, would you like to submit yourself for processing? And the guy's like, nah, right? Of course, because the skeptics never actually want to try it out. Um, God forbid. And then he goes into this story about, he talks about the pyramids. I think I mentioned this to you before where Mm -hmm. he draws this parallel or this analogy or (laughs) metaphor. I can never get these right. But that he goes, have you ever been to the pyramids? And he goes, no, he goes, yet, you know, they exist. So like basically fuck off, you know, like if, if you're not seeing something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that there can be parallel universes or there can be time travel. Basically, he just shuts him down. I think he shuts him down. But Amy Adams, his wife, Peggy, later on is just like, that embarrassed us. 
And I think this is also the first time that in the film, the film lays doubt out so that the viewer can see for themselves whether or not they also buy into what Dodd is spreading. So I think that that was a very intelligent move on the part of Paul Thomas Anderson. It's not just this like celebration of the cause and they do lay doubt and show that there are skeptics out there. There are people that are very confrontational about this type of work and they're not afraid to say it. But um, can we just talk about Freddie for a second? So they bring him into this party, but he's really in the background. Um, he's just observing things and and no one really knows who he is, but he's like going through all the rooms and he's stealing shit. He's putting shit in his pockets. And in the scene where they're all sitting in the parlor area and uh, the skeptic is, you know, saying his things. Dodd stands up and is handing it back to him. And then he says to him, um, if you already know the answers to our questions, why ask pig fuck? And he says pig fuck with such intensity that it, you're like, oh. <laughs> like uh, I'm I'm going to leave now like I've just shrunk down into an inch tall um but so that was a pig fuck was an improvised line and so l- let me explain this so Paul Thomas Anderson plucked a hair out of Philip Seymour Hoffman's head and he screamed pig fuck at him because it hurt him so then they turned around and they used that in the scene as nice. an improvisation. So I was just like, ugh, I love that. Um, but you know Hubbard in real life, L. Ron Hubbard, he turned away from psychiatry because they rejected his research. So after that, he like fledged like a full war against psychiatry. He was like, I think so. fuck psychiatry. Scientology still disavows. Yeah, they do. And I don't know what goes on now in Scientology with Miscavige and like how far they take it now. But yeah, psychiatry was not something that Dodd, because I think, I mean, talking about wanting to be loved, right? He wanted to be respected and for the psychiatry field to embrace this research. And they were just like, nah, brah, like you crazy. You want a boat writing books. They have their own, obviously, as we're talking about it, but, you know, just to point it out, they have their own frame for everything we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Psychiatry, hypnosis, regression therapy, you know, NLP. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have the details. I don't know. In fact, you know, if there are any Scientologists listening to this, we would love to hear from you. Yeah, Please totally. educate us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I know that they don't consider their auditing hypnosis or regression. Oh, interesting. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, as far as I understand it, they have their own frame. It's their and methodology. Vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah, for all of it. Yeah, they're getting like the Thetans out, like through every session, apparently. I wish I could be Thetan free, right? <laughs> Whatever that is. Uh oh! Don't call me, guys. <laughs> I'm gonna get a knock on the door that says, "Have you heard the good word?" I was um, gonna say, "You want to do a stress test? We can stop recording right now." Get, a get me one. on the cans, guys. Um, yeah, I said that to somebody the other day. They're like, "What are the cans?" I'm like, "The cans, <laughs> like whatever it is." Like, I mean, I've done some stuff with my physiotherapist that is very similar 
But yeah, they have a tool called the e-meter. I don't know what it does. I don't know if it's. I don't even know if it's a real thing. I would try it. Whatever. I get on it. Um, <laughs> anyways, so okay, they go to Philly now. So now, so we go to so Philly. Here we're in Philly. Lots of repeating in this movie. They're at um, Laura Dern's house, right? Laura Dern is like obsessed with Dodd. I think she wants to like fuck him. She's like read Dianetics like a million times or whatever. Dianetics came out in 1950. So I don't know what year this is that they're in Philly doing this thing. I don't know the year either. That's interesting, though, because it's definitely early 50s in the the movie ends with the publishing of his second book. Yeah. So I think we're supposed to believe he just put out his Dianetics. Okay, yeah, which is kind of crazy because Dianetics was <laughs> it's such a big book. Such a, I mean, yeah. there's so much information in that book. I still have not gotten through it. I mean, it's so long. But um, yeah, so they go to Philly. There's Amy Adams wakes Joaquin Phoenix up in the middle of the night, which I think I was joking about before with you, how... You know, when you drink that much ethanol and developer, like you can't just wake that person up easily. But she comes to him in the middle of the night. She's like shaking him up. She's like, Freddie, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. And she wakes him up and she repeats to him over and over again. She lays some, what, post-hypnotic suggestion to him? Yeah, her lines here are so powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, She says to him, I'm... Don't have the exact words in front of me, but Freddie, I need you to place something in the future that you want. And go and get you know, it. She basically, yes, and, and I want you to go get it, and I want you to tell me when you've gotten mm-hmm. it. You know, she comes to him in the middle of the night, wakes him up, and tells him something, I wish somebody would tell me. Yeah, I'm like, you know, like The way she speaks to him, actually, it's so, it's pretty moving. And, it you know, is. it's such a powerful, again, it's such a powerful hypnotic suggestion. And that he's There's, on her mind. Yeah, I know. There's a thing called timeline work where, you know, it's a a therapy and a a metaphor, a tool, timelines that can be applied in all kinds of different ways where you literally visualize and work with some point in your future on this timeline and trace the line from the present moment to that event and how you would need to feel along the way. We've done that. You built... That's right. You know, I mean, it's, it's actually fairly common as an idea across different therapies this idea of place something in the future that you want she's doing she's taking your fucking line man no it's beautiful it's i i think i took her line (laughs) you know i know well i loved that and belongs to all of us yeah okay so next morning they all get arrested (laughs) let's just jump right to that so they get arrested they're arrested on charges because the New York family is all pissed off at them. And he's being charged for a lot of things. What were those things? Financial crimes. I can't remember exactly yeah, like what. Fraud. fraud and embezzlement. Yeah. He, I, he, I heard at one point that he took money out of the account of the people whose house they were in in New York. Okay. The Drummonds. Okay. So he was taking money out of the Drummonds account. It was also their boat. And these are financial crimes that he was being arrested for in Philadelphia. I think also this story consistent with Hubbard. Okay, so he goes pretty peacefully, but all of a sudden, Freddie starts fucking fighting with the cops and punching them. And what's really sweet in this scene, it's a very, like, tense... It's not... I wouldn't say, like... Well, punching is violent, but it's it's not, like, violent, violent scene, but it's a scene that's, like, it's, it's quite the kerfuffle, if 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 you will there's a lot of like it's the perfect word s- sloppy slippy in your dress shoes and your nice suits like 
it's sliding around the porch outside. It's a lot of tussling. Tussling, yes. Tussling. They're tussling and they're go they're now they're arresting Freddie, right? And Dot is like, um, don't hurt him, don't hurt him. And I just thought, oh God, that just makes me emotional too, because he's he's thinking about Freddie. Like, don't hurt him. He's not saying like, oh, he's mentally ill. Don't hurt him. He's just like, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. Like, he's done nothing wrong. Like, he's just trying to protect Dodd. Because do you remember when the police come come up? He opens the door and he's like, is, you know, um, Dodd in there? And he's like, no. <laughs> and Ray just closes the door and Dodd comes out. He's like, what is this about? You know, and it's just like, he's like, no, go back inside. You're not here. You know, so I thought that part was funny. But anyway, so they're getting arrested. They put Dodd in a jail cell. Then Freddie, enter Freddie, right? Coming down the corridor, slipping and sliding. His shirt's off. He's handcuffed behind the back. He's screaming because he's living for this, right? Like, he needs to be arrested, right? He needs that something to act against, right? He needs society to... He needs... What's the word for that? When you just need something to push against in order to feel like you exist or you're alive, you know? Like, to me, that is Freddy. You know, he just can't mm. go through the world without conflict. And Dodd points at mm. this a lot during yes. the movie. So he... So does... Yeah. And so he's yeah. he's sliving and sliding. He's down the corridor. They put him in the jail cell right next to Dodd. And he's hollering. He's screaming. He's going fucking berserk, right? And Dodd is just... Casually leaning on the jail cell like, you're not an animal. You need to calm down. So something that I wanted to point out in the scene is that a few days into filming The Master, Paul Thomas Anderson saw, wow, Joaquin's crazy motherfucker. He often goes outside of the marks during filming. So we're going to light the whole entire space when we film. And... With this scene in particular, he gets so crazy that he, during the first take, when they put him in the jail cell, he's screaming and, and, and just completely getting nuts. And he starts to break the toilet in the jail cell. And he totally breaks the toilet. He breaks it and it comes off of the wall. Which is crazy. Which is insane. Just kicks through a porcelain basin. Yeah, which shocks yeah. the whole crew. Shocks Joaquin. Like they didn't he didn't even know he was capable of doing that, but he was so in character and so method that he just breaks the 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 tu- the, the the toilet, the turlet. That's method as fuck, is what Yeah, that is. and they did three takes of this. They still use the first take. But one thing that I wanted to say about I love this scene so much because I like identify with it internally, like having a tantrum. So he has this tantrum. He breaks the toilet and well, hang on, let me back up. So he breaks the toilet and now him and Dodd are screaming at each other. And you were talking about this too. He was just saying, I'm the only one who likes you. Dodd is saying this to Freddie. I'm the only one who likes you. Don't you know that kind of vibe, right? And he's screaming this at him and he's like, fuck you. And he's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And how people on the other side that just want to sleep in the jail cell, they're like, fuck you. And he's like, fuck you. And so it's this whole scene between the two of them. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman or Dodd, Dodd's, his character Dodd says, your fear of capture and imprisonment is from millions of years ago. You are not 
there. You are asleep. He tells him he's asleep again. So he's still trying to like through this argument that is so heightened, is so out of control. He's still laying down this track for him. Jessica, when you hear me start saying shit like that to people, you know I'm in a different phase of my career as a hypnotist, (laughs) just so you know, okay? I mean, that was crazy. And and so he's just like, they're they're obviously, well, not they. Freddie's exhausted, right, after all of this screaming and toilet breaking and still being given psychology. He, he tries to get on the top bunk. He can't get on the top bunk. He gets onto the bottom bunk and he tries to like pull the blanket over him, but he's handcuffed behind. And I just think that's such a funny scene, right? It's it's amazing. It's just so good. Also, the, the way it's framed mm-hmm. and shot, you know, I feel it's like the angel and the devil yeah. on the shoulders, yeah. yin and yang. You know, they are displayed and portrayed as this perfect duality, mm-hmm. you know, of... Dodd, like the mature psyche that's sophisticated and, you know, the animal primal instinct of Freddy. Yeah. So it's, it's really, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a really good scene. And there's just comedic elements for me in it when he tries to pull the blanket over and he's just like, and he's like shirtless. Like all of his clothes came off because he was just fighting off of every person who's trying to touch him or get him in the jail cell. And, you know, he's just, gone completely insane but he i think he fucking likes it like he needed to get the get the poison out you know i mean he's literally drinking poison so you know he there's catharsis in the scene yeah and so anyways dot is released from jail friday's still in jail for a minute and there's a dinner that happens back at the house because they return to the house where basically everybody says why freddie shouldn't come back Which is super fucked up. And they start accusing him of things that he's not even guilty of, that he's like a spy or he's a this or he's a that. I'm surprised you think it's fucked up. I mean, you know, Peg says at one point, he will be our undoing. Yeah. And I mean, I'm curious if you agree with them. I I, I totally agree with you. They're making shit up. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that they are reliable characters necessarily. You know, I mean, everybody has their emotional bias and it's clear they don't like Freddy. But I also, I mean, I think the movie does such a good job of seeing all of these points of view together where it's like, Freddy's an animal. Freddy's a danger. Like, Freddy, he, he, I think, you know, that mother Mm -hmm. Peg is right. You know, she's like, he will be our undoing. She sees the chaos in him in a way that Dodd is willing to entertain Mm -hmm. and, you know, wants to probably wants to redeem perhaps for his own egotistical purposes or reasons whereas peg is like you know this guy he's an animal he he will be our undoing uh, so yeah well, I, i'm i understand i don't know i see all the points of view i guess i'm not sure which one's right well you asked me like what i what i think about that is that i yeah. feel that if dodd believes what he speaks of what he preaches essentially then and believes that Freddie is familiar and he's come back into his life for some reason, that of course he's going to save him. Of course he's going to bring him back into the fold. And if that's their undoing, then so be it. It's almost like Dodd also doesn't fear for anything. It's like he's going to accept the fate of whatever is, is to be in a lot of ways. And I think 
you know, if he were a fearful person, he'd be like, yeah, protect me from this person, get this person away. But I mean, you even saw in the scene where he just like stands up to that guy and calls him a pig fuck. Um, yeah, I mean. Yeah, well said. Good call. Yeah. I love this movie. It's crazy. Did we, I don't know if we mentioned this, but um, hmm. did we did we talk about how Freddie threw a tomato at that guy in that scene? <laughs> I don't think so, but was it important? <laughs> I just wanted to go back real quick in time, if we can time travel for a second, just to that scene. Because you mentioned that they go back and they beat that guy up and like he, you know, Dodd's character gets really pissed about that. He's like, we do not do that. Retribution. Yeah. Retribution, which is also, again, there's a consistency there with striking down critics. Right. And Dodd doesn't do that. Yeah. Dodd does it with well, intellectual banter, right? Or... Attempts to, yes. But yeah, Freddie just fucking throws a tomato at him during that scene. I was like, where the fuck did he get a tomato from? Anyways, so um, skipping ahead, they return to the house, right? Freddie returns to the house. They bring Freddie back in. We're in Act 3 mm-hmm. now, right? This I is, think, I don't yeah. know. I don't know. This, I think this so. movie is, there's, uh, I don't know. It, it's so layered. They start getting into some light landmark form shit, so to speak. Thoughts? I defer to you here, please. The floor is yours. I've never participated in Landmark. I have some familiarity with their content, and I'm happy to offer commentary, but I think you would know better. If you're deferring to me about Landmark form, uh, I guess the reason why I brought this up is because it's it's a house full of people, and they're doing a lot of, I would say, emotionally strenuous exercises together. This is the one that you mentioned before the scene between um, the brother-in-law and Clark, yeah, yeah and and Dodd with and yeah, Freddie, and um, that to me seems like um, well, that to me actually seems a lot like Scientology because they have you face each other. I think this is from documentaries, so we also don't Do- know if this is true, guys. I'm just saying. F- yes, please. Yeah. Anybody who has the experience, feel yeah, free to where, chime in and contact Where they face us. each other and they go through this. The The reason why I say they start doing some landmark form shit is because there is this really intense scene. And it's also the scene where I feel like, again, this theme comes up where you really are feeling, I'm really feeling that Dodd thinks that he can fix Freddie's mental illness in this lifetime or maybe that's why he's put here maybe that's why they found each other again in this life is that he can mend him somehow or improve his state go ahead tell people too what landmark forum is just for people who might not know landmark forum is a really popular cult um (laughs) (laughs) um it's a self-help seminar series it came out of something called Est, what was in the 70s, 80s. Um, you know, people were coming out of the whole free love thing and they needed to wake the fuck up. And it was very appropriate at the time. Werner Erhard was the one that created the curriculum for Est. It's E-S-T, period. It was groundbreaking work. A lot of celebrities followed Werner Erhard's work. Um, they did the courses. Uh, there was a lot of NLP. There was a lot of guided meditation, hypnosis, there was a lot of confrontational exercises, a lot of interesting shit. But it was interesting because it was in the 70s, right? It was interesting because it was in that time period when people were doing a lot of drugs and really needed to wake up and get out of 
get out of whatever they were stuck in or get out of their own way, so to speak. And um, it was a self-help thing, right? Um, it helped a lot of people like Yoko Ono was one of their, his biggest like followers. And um, I think that um, what ended up happening is later, I think sometime in the 90s, maybe, I don't know if it's 80s, 90s, whatever, he sold the business. I don't know if it was to another family member. You guys can really look into all of this, so don't take my word for it. But um, they sold the business. And then I think that curriculum started to just kind of get a little bit perverted in a way where they changed a lot of the things or maybe they were trying to, quote, update it or whatever. I did landmark form. Um, I took what was good and I left the rest behind after I needed a therapy after I did it. <laughs> um, I think that was one of the um, that was actually the first emergency call that I had with my therapist ever in years of therapy is after taking that course. And uh, you came to my house and did an emergency <laughs> hypnosis session on me. I was like laying on the ground. And, um, but. Emergency hypnosis, not common for, is for it people. Not? Know, but yeah. Have you never had an emergency really, call? No. Uh, you're one of my Great. Few, I feel Jessica. real fucking dramatic now. <laughs> no, it was really needed. And I'm, I'm really like blessed and grateful to have had you in my life at that time because it was really Please, traumatic, yeah. but I think that um, there are a lot of positive aspects to self-help courses like Landmark Form, and a lot of people have extracted wonderful experiences from these weekends and these courses and the curriculum. There's some of the curriculum I love, and it makes a lot of sense, but if you fall through it and you don't keep your wits about you and your own person intact I think that that's when it, these things can become culty and that's when you lose yourself in it speaking of Freddie Quell in yeah. Philadelphia so now they're in this scene and I think the reason why I say they start doing some late landmark form stuff is because what they do in landmark form there's a, a part of during the weekend even in the beginners classes where they break you down to build you up. So they're breaking Freddie down. Freddie's already pretty fucking broken, but they have an audience for this. So it's taking place again in the parlor area. And there's a window and there's a wall. And so Dodd has made sort of an example out of him. And in this moment in the film, I remember when I was watching it first, I'm like, is he exploiting Freddie? Or like, yeah, maybe he is exploiting Freddie, but not in the way that we think of exploitation as negative, but like as an investigation as an experiment like let's do this thing with freddie and have everybody watch so he has freddie walk to the wall and say i want you to walk to the wall and touch the wall and something to the effect of like explain tell describe the wall to me in some way and he does and then he goes walk to the window do the same thing window wall window wall window wall window wall and he breaks him down to the point where he's just like going insane all right a fucking wall la, la, la. and he's going to the window and he's doing the same thing and he's really he's unraveling and then the lesson or session just ends and i forgot what what dodd says to him but he says you're good or something of that nature, like you're done, you're finished, which I would say, 
think he just says yeah, you're done. and he embraces him and he hugs. And I was also waiting for people to clap, and nobody claps, and it just goes to another scene. But um, I read that the as that the um, the editor of this film, Leslie Jones, not to be confused with the comedian Leslie Jones, but the, the editor of the film, Leslie Jones, said that this was the most difficult scene to film. And I remember when I was watching this film, the scene specifically, him going from the window to the wall for like, who knows? There, there was really no sense of time, right? Who knows how long he was doing this? And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, there were some camera moves that happened in this with him moving back and forth that I was aware of it. But also, I, I love film and filmmaking and cinematography. So I just like picked up on like the way the camera was moving in the scene and how it was this endurance thing. And that's why I compared it to Landmark Forum because it is endurance and it's psychologically mm. uh, disturbing. And so I could not find, though, what Leslie meant by that this was a tough scene to edit. I didn't know if she meant because mm. of the emotional component of it or like the exploitative, abusive nature of it, or just like the nature of how the camera was moving back and forth and how they were trying to like capture the endurance of it. But it was quite, quite a great scene. And, um, but it felt a little bit, I felt a little deflated because after they embraced and they hugged and he was quote done, like no one clapped, like I said, but um, yeah. So at the end of this whole just, I don't know what the hell this was, but the workshop or something during the week, you know, and they do the face-to-face -face yeah. auditing or the face-to-face -face sessions. So at the end of all of this, he announces that, well, Peggy actually announces that they're going to be premiering Dodd's new book, his new writings, book two, book two. called The Split Saber. <laughs> And that they are going to be premiering it in Phoenix, Arizona. So let's unstick this pin from earlier that I mentioned. So mm. Peggy makes the announcement that The Cause is going to be publishing her husband, Mr. Dodd's second book, The Split Saber in Phoenix, Arizona. This is really significant to me and to other people, I'm sure, because Phoenix symbolizes new beginnings, <laughs> like Phoenix rising out of the ashes kind of vibe, right? Which you know, was the reason that Walking Phoenix and his family changed their name from the surname Bottom to Phoenix after leaving the Children of God cult in the 1970s. How about right? that? That's very interesting. I didn't know that. I was like, yeah. damn, leave a cult, change your name, That's cool. five children. Yeah. Okay, well. And in this article in The Guardian that I read, it said in 1979, after the birth of their fifth child, things took a significantly different course. And Arlen and John ditched the ordinary old bottom as a surname and picked Phoenix with its connotations of a magical bird rising out of the ashes. Gorge. Fantastic choice they made. And now we're in the yeah. West. We're out West. Yeah. Let's bring this movie home. So they go Let's out go and they're home. driving motorcycles. <laughs> this is such a fucking, this is a crazy ass scene. And it's gorgeous. I know. I got nothing. It's beautiful. I, I got nothing for this scene other than I think we are really, you know, we're just supposed to be there with these guys. And, and 
uh, Rami Malek's character's wife, I think, yep. is with them. And I think it's just the exhilaration of riding into the desert and the symbolism, the freedom of it. I think it's really all there in yeah, the screen. Yeah, so Freddie, um, they go out and they're riding motorcycles and, and they go up and, and he goes, pick a point, drive as fast as you can to that point. And Philip Seymour Hoffman on a bike is my everything. <laughs> pick, a, pick a point in the yeah, future and so go to like, it. I mean, that's, that's not what they say here, but, yeah, but it's, there it's it echoed. Is. There it is visually, yeah. right? So he's on the motorcycle. Yeah. So Philip Seymour Hoffman, he's like, and then he comes back, right? Freddie gets on. Freddie don't come back. He keeps riding. And, you know, Dodd is looking into the distance and he knows Freddie's not coming back, which again is just so fucking, he just knows this guy. He knows him. It's a perfect yes. distillation of the character. And he's not too, right? upset yeah. about it. He's not upset about it. It's it's what Freddie did yeah. to that girl, too, in Lynn, Massachusetts. You know, Freddie, don't and come back. And guess what Freddie does? He goes and he looks for that girl. So after this scene, he goes yes. back. Yes, that's true. After this scene. He doesn't scene, find yeah. her. She's Well, she, he finds mother. She's married. She's somewhere else. And he kind of takes that pretty hard. But it's just like, this is just another day with Freddie, you know? <laughs> Let downs and disappointments in his life, right? And also just to back up for a second, I don't know where they, oh, I think this was in the very first session with Dodd's character on the ship that he reveals his dad is out of the picture or dead or something, and that his mom is in a mental hospital, a mental institution. That there's a history of incest yeah. within the family and... Again, it really lays bare yes. a context for some rough stuff, a context yeah, for and, and, and And you do come through the rest of the film having this compassion and backing this understanding for Freddie and his behavior. And you kind of give him a break, you know? Yeah. For what it's worth, I really think that depends on the I viewer. do. I, I, and again, I think that... Uh, you do. Uh, but I think this is a compliment to PTA's mm -hmm. direction, again, that I think depending on the viewer, it's like, that guy's a dangerous yeah. animal. Or or I have empathy for him and heard why he would be the way he is. Or, you know, any other number of points of view on this person. I mean, I, I think it's a credit to how truly three-dimensional yeah. the performances are. Because I, I, do, I do not feel the way that you well, do. Well, it makes I'll me kind that. of question my own psychology because I'm a real, you know me, I'm pretty judgmental. I mean, you've heard me on other episodes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I draw lines with things and I have a lot of boundaries. And I think that when I see a full picture of a person, I can't help but be like, oh, well, that makes sense. Maybe that's the Libra rising or something. But I'm like, okay, I can hold compassion for this person or I can hold understanding. I, I might not be best friends with this person, but I can see it for what it is and sort of like I'm ha with you have on a that. heart yeah, about it. But sure. see, I'm not Dodd. I'm not this like millionaire guy just going around the world and wanting to have eccentric people around me, but feeling um, protected enough in my own self-awareness that I could – I could kind of quell Freddie's bullshit. Pun, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, his last name, right? I, this, this. Yeah. I mean, listen, man. I'm, I'm with yeah. you on all that. And this movie is just so fucking good. It's making us question our yeah, own psychology, which is like, right? oh my god, like this is the brilliance of this movie. So, 
Um, so Hoffman goes off to London and he starts a school. Freddie's, I don't know what he's doing. He's working another job. He's in a theater and there's a scene in a theater where somebody, he's sleeping, watching cartoons or something, right? Is it cartoons? And somebody yeah. brings a phone to him, which I'm like, first of all, I'm like, how long is that cord? Because it was like an old cinema. I know this is a stupid I, thing to like point out, but. No, I'm I'm there with you, though. I was watching that. I was like, A, that's really cool. B, would that yeah, really like happen? How long? I can't even, I can't imagine the phone. Because the theater yeah. was massive. Anyway. Yeah, it, yeah, it's. So he must whatever. be working yeah. in a theater or <laughs> no. just like a theater goer who always like, or slumming it like in the theater. And he's sleeping in the theater. The guy wakes him up and says, you have a phone call. It's Dodd. Dodd's like, hey. <laughs> I'm in London, yo. <laughs> like, roll up. Come on, come visit me. And he tells him to come to London. And he says, I've remembered where we met, which totally calls on the shit he laid down at the beginning. Like, I know you from somewhere, right? So he calls on this by saying, Hey, I've remembered where we met. He goes, Come to London and I'll tell you. So he's like, I'm not going to tell you right now. Come to London, I'll tell you. So he shows up in London, walks into the room. Dodd's there. Amy Adams is there in this, like, chair off to the side. And she's pissed, right, because she doesn't fucking want to see Freddie again. She's like, this guy is so annoying to me. But Amy says something interesting. She goes, this is something you do for a billion years or not at all. And she gets up and walks out after she says that, which to me – which is another Scientology That's what I was going to say, right? the, billion the billion year years. thing. Yeah. Because they don't really bring up the billion year thing a lot. But again, it's just like, I'm not supposed to draw parallels to Scientology about the billion year contract. But I do like that line that's written for her. Like, it's something you do for a billion years or not at all. And I love that. I Even though it sounds fucking nuts. And and culty yeah, no. or whatever, but I I love it because it is a, it speaks to dedication and loyalty. It illustrates the level she's on yes. with it too, and her character is so consistent with that throughout yeah. the film. And and she's also lovely in this this way, right? Yeah. So she leaves and they get to talking. <sighs> this is a really emotional part of this movie. I'm sorry. So. Philip Seymour Hoffman gives him and Joaquin give like the best performance during the scene. I'm so sorry I'm crying, but it's so good because he starts by saying to Freddie, he says, free winds and no tyranny for you. Sailor of the sea, you pay no rent, free to go where you please, then go. Go to that landless latitude and good luck. If you figure a way to live without serving a master, any master, then let the rest of us know, will you? For you'd be the first in history. So then Freddie asks him, because they both have tears in their eyes now. And he says, you said you figured out how we met. And oh my God, when Freddie asks this question, it's almost like, He's really curious. He wants to know. But there's this expression on his face that he's like, I'm going to find out how we met. But he's emotional about it already. Because I feel like if you think about if we 
if if we're recording everything, like Amy said at the beginning of the film, Dodd's wife, maybe he already knows, right? So that's just me reading into it. But um, so then Dodd goes, well, I went back, which, you know, regressed. He goes, and I found it. He goes, we worked together in Paris and they were members of a pigeon post during a siege against Prussian forces delivering secret mail and messages. And he tells him, he goes, only two went missing on the worst winter on record. Only two. He repeats this to him. Again, there's that repetition. Very emotional scene because you see it goes back and forth between the two of them and they both have tears in their eyes. And then he says to Freddie, if you leave, I never want to see you again. Or you can stay with tears in his eyes, like in this upbeat, like, or you can stay, like, almost like asking him, like, please stay, you know? And then Freddie goes, maybe in the next life. And Dodd goes, if we meet again in the next life, you'll be my sworn enemy and I will show you no mercy. I was like, shit. Like, <laughs> whoa, buddy. And then Freddie sort of laughs with tears in his eyes. And then Hoffman starts singing to him. And Freddie continues to cry. And you just know Freddie is not going to stay. You know it. And Dodd knows it too. And I think that's why he says, you know, if you leave, I never want to see you again or you can stay. And, and you hear that pleading in in that line or you can stay then he starts singing to him he sings on a slow boat to china which may i do you know anything about slow boat to china i okay. do but please go ahead um so this was are you gonna no. sing it what are you gonna do <laughs> um not after like being emotional now she's gonna start singing they're gonna be like i'm gonna unsubscribe from this podcast i don't know what's going on with these two especially her <laughs> so he starts singing on a slow boat to china and, of course, Freddie's a captive audience. He's crying as he's singing. And so this was a popular song by the legend Frank Lesser. Um, it was written in 1948. But when someone says, I'd like to get you on a slow boat to China, this is actually, if I may, as a Vegas girl. It's a well-known phrase among poker players referring to a person who is lost steadily and handsomely. Go on. Isn't that just like incredible? So here we are. He's serenading him with this song, with this meaning. And we're graced with this one last moving scene with the acknowledgement between these two characters, really. Just basking in this. Yeah. Yeah. What are the last shots of the movie? Do you recall? Doesn't it end with the water or scenes of him with other soldiers? Or am I forgetting? Am He's I walking down a path and there's cars passing him. That's the last shot? Don't know if it's the last shot, but that was the last shot that I remembered seeing. Noted. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember, the. I remember, of course, everything that takes place in England, which you so beautifully just walked us through. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, you know, the movie's so hypnotic, I'm either misremembering and placing in my imagination more water shots at the end, or I feel like it ends with like a tiny flashback of him with the other soldiers. Maybe or Bobby. 
There it is. Oh, yeah. And he's like put her there nipple or something, right? Yeah. He's twisting her nipple. Okay. There yeah. it is. There we get that so, comedy. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wouldn't call it, I, I didn't see it as comedy. I didn't see it. I mean, you know, I'd. Well, it's tragedy. I, I, it's like all of it, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just all of it. So a couple last points I want to make yeah. before we bring this thing Me home. Me too. I have a few uh, One is that the movie touches most of the major cities geographically mm-hmm. where these kinds of subjects were blossoming and burgeoning in the late 20th century from the West Coast, what feels like, you know, around LA to New York to Philadelphia to Phoenix, uh, these were and are all places where wellness scenes, quote unquote, still thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it traces that geographical history through the film really quickly, just, you know, praising the end of the movie as much as we have every other part. Yeah. And, you know, Jessica, the last scene that I wanted to ask you about, mm-hmm. which we forgot to, I forgot to bring it up as we were moving yeah. through this. And this is the, my last thing I would love to hear you speak about for the film. And then I'm good on this this movie that I love so much and could talk about for days. <laughs> You're going to go be like, Aah! no, that's me. <laughs> but the scene, I forgot to bring it up. Mm-hmm. It, we have mentioned it before, but there is this almost imperceptible scene in the middle of the movie yes. in the house in New York where all of the women are nude mm-hmm. suddenly. Yeah. All of the women have no clothes on. All of the men are fully clothed. Mm-hmm. Dodd is singing. Lancaster Dodd is singing to the group. It's a rather jovial, excited party scene. And, you know, the it's never mentioned. It's, again, it's deeply hypnotic. It comes out of yeah. nowhere. It goes away. And one of my, you know, I, so first off, I, I would love to hear you speak about this. I'd really defer to your interpretations here and for me i can't help but see the legacy in these kinds of if we want to call them cults if we want to call them self-help programs if we want to call them therapies all of the above the legacy of men in power abusing that power and women being somewhat vulnerable and perceived even even in the fact that they are deeply powerful, again, Amy Adams is in that scene and she wields a great deal of power. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like that's what I'm seeing PTA kind of interpret through that scene, the vulnerability of these women to the legacy of these men who would abuse their power in, in these contexts. That said, I, I don't know how to interpret it. I'm curious what you saw. It's funny that you interpret it like that. I mean, I'm definitely hardcore feminist, but I didn't even read that scene in a in a negative way at all. Like I thought it was fun because I thought that when Philip Seymour Hoffman starts to sing and dance, they're kind of in a little corridor area, kind of like a parlor area slash kitchen area of this house. And there are three people like sitting on a piano bench, like three women playing the piano together. And he just starts singing and everybody's clapping. And, and, but there's a shot of Freddie and Freddie's observing all of this. So I thought that it was like a kind of a hypnotic dream sequence where Freddie's imagining all these women naked, but which it, the women it could aren't be sexualized. 
Yeah. Yeah. The women aren't sexualized. Everybody's having a grand time. And there's no, Mm -hmm. none of the men are in recognition of these women being naked. They all appear as if they have clothes on. So that's why I view it through Freddie's lens of just him imagining all the women naked, which is like totally fine. Like that's his way he, that's the way he is. Yeah. Um, His character would do that. Yeah. And it maybe represents a type of Eden for him, right? Because he's found acceptance, Mm. like Dodd accepts him under any circumstances, even when he misbehaves. And so maybe this is that kind of scene of pleasure or uh, happiness. And Dodd Mm. is really at peak happiness when he's singing, you know, and, and, and playing to an audience, right? And having people clap it's not really even the attention it's like the camaraderie and the connectedness that he has in this group with the cause like how the cause brings people together and yeah it is a very joyful and you know he's drinking ethanol (laughs) and it's just like these people are having a great time and and i also i love the representation of all the women and how the the bodies are normal looking and there are you know very much um there are young women there are very old much older women like sitting like elderly almost you know sitting at the piano yeah and there's no self-consciousness that's why i see it as a scene that's imagined and not real but i it's interesting Mm -hmm. to hear your perspective of it that like the dominion over women by men or like the power over women Abuse of power, really. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, the vulnerability of women through the male gaze in that context. Yeah, but that's what you're you're seeing the male gaze. Agreed. Through through Freddie. Presumably, yeah. yeah. The, uh, yeah, I'm totally with you. It's the presence and the simultaneity of the nudity. And as you say, the absence of sexuality in the scene. It's so joyful. It's so safe. Everybody's having a great time. Uh, And it's, yeah, it it really, I think. And it contributes to the hypnotic quality of the film overall. Yeah, because it really comes out of nowhere. Um, But it's not. And it goes away and and it never comes back. Yeah. And it's, and it's, but it's not um, alarming or shocking or jarring. It's just yeah. like, cause you're flowing through this movie and then it's like, oh, yeah. oh, and everyone's naked now. And then, but it's not like a, well, all the women are naked. Uh, sorry. Now. All the women are naked. <laughs> and, no. but it doesn't even really, it does, it didn't, it didn't bother me. I just thought, oh, that's interesting. This is how Freddie is. Yeah. This is Freddie's, you know, uh, daydream essentially. Yeah. It didn't well, bother me either. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure what. I was genuinely curious, still am, you know, it's just like this kind of flowing interpretation of, huh, Yeah. what was, what was being, what was in PTA's head, you know, what was yeah. in the, the script writer's mind as they were doing it? Do you know that, that um, this movie won nothing? And I think that that was a complete <laughs> shutout from, in the Academy Awards. Well, it won our, it won our hearts. hearts. It yeah. won our minds. It's yeah. fucked us up psychologically. And we still have lots of <laughs> questions for Paul Giving Thomas Anderson. us a lot Anderson. to think about. Given yeah. us a lot to think about. Um, it's thrown some wrenches in some thoughts about Scientology. But I think all in all, I think the reason why it was because they were nominated, but mm. no one won anything. And I think that that was very fucking intentional because it was a movie about Scientology and Scientology 
lies within Hollywood, <laughs> you know, like a, a, there's a lot of um, celebrities that are Scientologists and a lot of right. Scientologists that are celebrities or, you know, actors. So Philip Seymour Hoffman. So this was the last film he did with Paul Thomas Anderson before he died in 2014. He acted in five of his films. This was his fourth and final Oscar nomination. So it's also like sad that he didn't win this fucking Oscar for this film. I mean, it's sad he didn't. The loss of him is tragic. Yeah, and also this is going to be really sad for you. I don't want to bum you out more, but I'll. Well, we won't leave it on this note. We're actually going to leave it on the little tidbit. You're going to get really excited about, but. Philip Seymour Hoffman had his first drink in 23 years at the rap party for this film, leading to his relapse back into alcoholism. Okay, that is a bummer. Yeah. What's, what's, what's the next tidbit? So I was just going to talk about um, just the beauty of the film and that it was shot on 65 millimeter. Mm. Um, so he used Panavision System 65 camera, making it the first movie to be shot on this format in 16 years. So, Dan, do you know what the last film shot on 65 millimeter was before the master? Gone with the wind. <laughs> no. I have no idea. In fact, it was not. Was it a Christopher Nolan movie? It was Kenneth Branagh's 1996 movie adaptation His Hamlet? of Hamlet. Yes. His Hamlet? Oh, I love Branagh's <laughs> Hamlet, actually. This is kind so, of amazing. How weird. So um, speaking of which, let's plug. His Hamlet's amazing. <laughs> let's plug Kenneth Branagh. Go back and watch our episode of Dead Again. Shout out to Branagh mm-hmm. and Dead Again. Yeah. Yeah. So he he was also interested in quality. <laughs> <laughs> and he did Hamlet on 65 millimeter. So um, and also it was the first of three movies, The Master in the 2010s. Hmm. Did we say 2010s? 2010s? Yeah. Um, To be shot on 65 millimeter, later followed by Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight in 2015, and then Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk in 2017. So there you go. These are beautiful films. They are. We love a 65 millimeter. I mean, it shows with this one too, man. I mean, even watching it on Netflix, it's it is spellbinding. It's so good, and you know, let's bring it home. What are what are some final thoughts here? What do you got? What do I got? Let's see. Final thoughts. My final thoughts, Jessica, and I know we've said this already, but just to distill it here, this movie is a fictionalized but highly accurate dramatization in its own emotionally curated way, a telling of the foundations of a significant amount of wellness, self-help, and psychotherapy Mm -hmm. as it still exists today, you know, traced through the 1950s and late 40s in a a dramatization of what I think we can safely say is the life of L. Ron Hubbard and the foundations of Scientology. Mm -hmm. And I fucking love it. I think this movie is just, it's highly underrated. It's a lot of other things I understand. Like we have a vocabulary and an interest in this stuff that, you know, perhaps quote-unquote average audiences might not whoever that is but um yeah just love this movie my favorite movie we have done in this hypnosis and film series so thank you thank you so much listeners and thank you jessica for this conversation this is great i mean this film is riveting that's a platitude right with (laughs) with then filmmaking spellbinding cinema it was amazing i mean 
every bit of this film, the performances were so fucking moving. I'm speechless. That's it. I think we should end it here because we could go on and on about this. But that movie was so moving and so important to the history of filmmaking that I think everyone should see it and draw their own conclusions. And thank you for listening to this episode of Mind Space we'll Minimal. see you in this life or the next, right? <laughs> you can find us on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Visit mindspaceminimal.com and email us at mindspaceminimal at gmail.com. That's M-I-N-D-S-P-A-C-E-M-I-N-I-M-A-L dot com. Keep it minimal and keep it moving. Thanks again for listening.